This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with the global economic correspondent for the New York Times, Peter S. Goodman, about his new and illuminating book, Davos Man, How the Billionaires Devoured the World. It's an important and life-giving book, Peter. And maybe you can begin with answers to two questions raised in the title. Who is Davos Man? And how are we to understand the verb devoured? Well, these are great questions. I mean, the term Davos man was coined back in 2004 by the political scientist Samuel Huntington. And he used it to describe uh, principally people who go to the World Economic Forum at Davos. This is this annual pilgrimage for the wealthiest people on earth, the billionaire class, along with heads of state, uh, public intellectuals, the odd Hollywood celebrity. Um, and they, they go there to schmooze and do deals and signal their virtues. They all uh, commune under the uh, very ironic uh, banner committed to improving the state of the world, uh, which is really something given that the people who go to Davos regularly are by any reasonable standard the ultimate beneficiaries of the status quo. And the status quo doesn't really need much improvement for them. I use the term to refer to a kind of separate species of human. People who are so wealthy, I mean, their wealth uh, requiring accountants and lobbyists and lawyers in multiple jurisdictions, that it really challenges their allegiance to anything other than the bottom line, to institutions, to nations. Uh, And I, I use it specifically to refer to the billionaire class that would have us believe that they are uh, not only you know not the source of our problems in the world, but they are the solution to our problems. People like you know Mark Benioff, who's one of the five primary characters in my book. He's the CEO of a big Silicon Valley tech company called Salesforce, who literally said at Davos, this is virtual Davos last year because of the pandemic, CEOs are the real heroes of the pandemic. I mean, he wasn't talking about frontline medical workers. He wasn't talking about people who are uh, serving up our, our food, delivering our packages, emptying bedpans in senior citizens' homes. No, CEOs are the heroes. And he said, you know, we we saved the world not for profit, but just to save the world. Uh, this, this, I argue in the book, is not a gaffe, as some people would characterize it, but it's a worldview. It's, it's, a, it's a worldview that uh, assumes that if these guys are the good guys, then the more money they have, the more good they can do. This is an elaborate protection uh, against things like progressive taxation and antitrust enforcement and regulation. They use it to essentially fend off the exercise of democracy. Now, you ask me, what does devour refer to in the title? This is an excellent question. I mean, I think that if you look properly at the last half century of life in not only the United States, but also Britain and other uh, major developed economies, what we see is this ultimate form of grift. We see a systematic bottom-up transfer of wealth, you know, from all of us to 
a handful of people who are capable of employing lobbyists by the dozens, uh, who have perverted the workings of our democracies in order to concentrate more and more wealth in their hands at the expense of everyone else. They have dismantled government programs, public infrastructure. They have transferred the proceeds to themselves. And in so doing, they have not only ended up with most of the wealth, they've rendered our democratic societies dysfunctional. I think that you can draw a straight line from our uh, extreme inequality uh, to uh, being in a place where we have these life-saving COVID vaccines that uh, many people in the United States won't take because they're accepting these insane conspiracy theories, the January 6th insurrection. You know, these are all, Brexit for that matter, these are all manifestations of the same basic setup, which is huge numbers of people have uh, noticed that they have lost the ability to support their families at a middle-class standard. That part's real, and it it lays the ground for political opportunists who offer all sorts of cockamamie, insane, absurd explanations for what's happened, uh, demonizing uh, groups like immigrants, uh, and then uh, often advocating, quote-unquote, solutions that worsen inequality and that are often uh, being themselves sold by opportunistic Davos men who who use our backlash to inequality as an example to make inequality even worse. This gets started, though, in, in your view, in my own view, in, in 1980 with the election of Reagan, who comes in with the supported by the Chicago School of Economic Theory and Milton Friedman and the idea that uh, government is bad and that the regulation strangles the sinews of innovation and so forth. And, and this is the story that is told in the, in the media for, the, for 40 years. I mean, the people that you talk about, like Jamie Dimon and Larry Frank and Steve Schwartzman and Bezos, these are heroes in, in, in the media. You know, their, their parties, their divorces, their magnificent yachts and so on. But they've been the, the hero of the story for 40 years with the telling of what you call the cosmic lie. Develop the thought of the cosmic lie and, and, and point out that, that these people are, the billionaires have, have had the full-throated support of, of most of the media. Yeah, so the cosmic lie indeed does go back to Reagan. It's not just Reagan, it's Thatcher in the UK. It's a whole school of Milton Friedman acolytes uh, around the world who who do subscribe to this idea, and not by accident, I point out in the book, uh, but because of uh, the assiduous lobbying of corporate interests uh, and the careful uh, cultivating of access journalists and compliant think tanks. You know, they pervade this idea that, as Reagan famously puts it, government is not the solution to, the, to our problems. Government is, in fact, the problem. And you can draw a straight line. Uh, I mean, it's a long way. There's a lot of ground to cover, but you can draw a straight line from that idea taking root to, again, Mark Benioff in Davos last year saying, uh, in addition to saying that CEOs are the heroes of the pandemic, the government did not save you. Non-governmental organizations did not save you. We saved you and not for profit 
but to save the world. There has been this downgrading of government services. I mean, the, the, the typical playbook is some corporate interest financed by a Davos man uh, pursuing their own interest uh, eliminates support for some government program, some form of welfare, some health care program, transportation, you know, what have you, subsidized child care. And then lo and behold, the services diminish and think tanks come along and say, oh, well, this isn't working anymore. You know, this doesn't work. Uh, we should just eliminate it altogether. And this is the mechanism by which Davos man dismantles public infrastructure and transfers the proceeds to themselves while telling us what I refer to as the cosmic lie in the book, which is this idea that when we organize our economies around sending more wealth to the people who already have most of it, the benefits will just magically trickle down uh, throughout our economies, something that we've tried many times and it's worked out zero times. I mean, one part of it always does work out, and that's the part where the wealthy people end up with with most of the money. And that's why we keep living through it. And this happens. What we've developed as a result is is um, the party of the rich and the party of the poor. I mean, I mean, the, it's it's plutocracy which we've been living under and for 40 years, as I can see it. Because these people, these, it's not just the extraordinary rich individuals, but it's their whole supporting caste. I mean, it, it, it's members of Congress. It's, as you say, right. think tanks and media and so on. I mean, it's... it's uh, well, I think it's us. I mean, I think that where Davos Man has been most successful is in insinuating his thoughts and his worldview into our everyday political yes. discourse, even when we don't think we're we're thinking that way. I mean, I mean, I think you know most of us can see through the uh, titillation of you know the absurd spectacle of Davos itself. I mean, the the gathering of yeah. the World Economic Forum, where you know I've gone and watched uh, billionaires indulge in the Syrian refugee experience simulation, where they're you know they submit to being blindfolded and led around in the dark. Uh, and uh, while someone's screaming at them, demanding papers in a language they don't understand, and then they all congratulate each other for their empathy, and they go off to a banquet hosted by some global bank where they have caviars and truffles and champagne. I mean, we can all see that as the kind of, you know, billionaire porn absurdity that we can watch on a show like, you know, Succession or Billionaires. But what I think we have to identify, and, you know, part of my mission in writing, in this, writing this book is that even... Ordinary people will say, well, you know, we can't possibly afford you know, national health care, which is something that they seem to manage to afford in every other developed democracy, because, you know, we taxes would have to go so high. I mean, listen, American tax rates have been uh, downgraded over decades to the point where billionaires like Steve Schwartzman, another primary character in my book, who's worth about $35 billion, you know, he's paying less of a share of his wealth and income to the federal government than the people scrubbing his toilets in his multiple residences that he owns the way most of us own socks. That's a problem. Um, and if you start with the assumption that that's just somehow how everything's got to be, or will monkey wrench prosperity, yeah, then we can't afford anything. Then we can't afford to help people uh, get to universities. We can't afford uh, infrastructure. We can't afford health care. We can't afford to help people who uh, have lost jobs. 
But the, the trouble is that we've been sold this false binary that uh, needs to be revealed. This this idea that we either have the world as, as as we know it now, with its inequality, along with its miraculous COVID vaccines and Uber and central air conditioning, or we screw around with that formula, and then we might as well be Venezuela, where we're all you know diving into dumpsters for our dinner. I mean, of course, the reality is that we can have growth and innovation and prosperity. We can even have rich people. I mean, I'm not demonizing rich people in my book. Thanks, Jeff Bezos, for e-commerce. Can't imagine how we would have gotten through the pandemic without it. But we can still ask Jeff Bezos to pay his taxes and make sure that the people who are working in his warehouses in the middle of a pandemic have adequate protection and they have paid sick leave, something that Amazon has been lobbying against aggressively uh, for, for, for decades. We have a say over how we distribute the gains of our highly successful form of capitalism. And yet we've been sold this idea that we shouldn't have a say, that the government should get out of the way, that we should just outsource the solution uh, to our problems to, to, to the billionaire class. And we've been running an open air trial and how that goes, and it doesn't go well. You refer to the our current uh, crowd of Davos men, and you compare them to the robber barons of the late 19th century. And the second Gilded Age is, is the right. age, you know, that, that kind of begins with, with Reagan. And draw some of the comparisons between the first Gilded Age and, the, and, the, uh, and our current Gilded Age. Well, by and large, Robert Barron's like Carnegie, Rockefeller, you know, they were content to end up with all the money as the end in itself. I mean, yeah, they like to put their names on buildings and build university campuses and tell us that that was recompense for uh, brutalizing labor uh, if there was an uprising. But, you know, they were content to wall themselves off from the rest of society, enjoy their their exclusive parties. And that was as far as it went. Uh, Davos Man operates on a whole different level. I mean, Davos Man would have us believe that all of our interests are collective and that he has our best interests at heart and that government needs to simply get out of the way. Labor unions are an impediment uh, to his visions. Like the more power and control he's got, the better everything will be for everyone. And despite voluminous evidence to the contrary, Davos men will then use a, a lot of the benefits of modern society like social media uh, will weaponize them to defend uh, the realization of, of of the reality that we're living through. So, you know, take Amazon, for example. I mean, I mean, this w- the power that Bezos has enjoyed to influence our thinking goes, you know, vastly beyond the robber barons, even as uh, many controlled uh, giant uh, newspaper franchises uh, back in the day. I mean, in the middle of the pandemic, or, or I should say the first wave of the pandemic, we know that there's this labor uprising at this giant warehouse in Staten Island 
where uh, workers don't have any protection. They're getting sick. Amazon's not being transparent about how many are sick. The managers are somehow just missing now. And they fire the uh, head of this labor uprising, this guy, Christian Smalls, whose story I, I lay out in the book. They accuse him of violating quarantine, which is incredibly ironic, given that he wants everyone to effectively be quarantined, though with paid sick leave. And after this story becomes a full-blown public relations catastrophe for Amazon. Amazon actually hires a bunch of TV consultants to produce local television segments around the country, interviews with happy Amazon warehouse workers, all this data and all the protective gear they've now distributed, all the measures they're taking to keep people safe. And they distribute these to local television franchises, scores of which then air these spots as regular news stories. I mean, the power that these guys have uh, to, to influence our debate. Uh, we watched uh, you know, Steve Schwartzman and Blackstone, this giant private equity company that invested aggressively into healthcare in the run-up to the pandemic and was at the center of this uh, so-called surprise billing scandal where people show up uh, in emergency rooms thinking that they're inside their insurer network, only you know they're not really in a position to uh, question the particularities of their healthcare insurance policies while they're rolled in on gurneys. They sign whatever they need to sign to go see the people in the white coats. And what they've signed is a document saying that they can be treated by someone out of network. They get these incredible bills. They're hassled by collection agents. This is a major reason why uh, Americans end up in personal bankruptcy because of unaffordable healthcare bills. And Schwartzman and Blackstone and his whole industry, they just go on the attack. They release all these television spots, blaming this problem on the insurance lobby, blaming this solution, which is the government getting involved to regulate, to prevent these sorts of practices as, you know, this is just a freebie for the insurance industry. I mean, these guys are incredibly sophisticated in their uh, demonizing the people who are actually in a position to help while again and again presenting themselves as the solution to our problems. Yes, I mean, I mean, so that the healthcare industry is set up to prioritize profit, not the actual care. I mean, talk about the RVU, the relative value right. unit. I mean, that's they reduce everything to money. Yeah, I, I didn't think I could be shocked by the reporting that I did for this book. But, you know, healthcare was an area that I hadn't dug much into in my career. And the degree to which the profit motive has insinuated itself into American healthcare, I, I just simply found it astonishing. And I, I think you're right. You know, it's all about money. And so very well-intentioned healthcare professionals, people who have trained to help us, are essentially put in positions where they are serving the interests of profit-making right. investors like Steve Schwartzman, who view hospitals no differently than you know Starbucks views coffee shops or American Airlines views seats on the plane. Like they want people in those seats on the plane, just as uh, investors who own hospitals want those hospitals full. This is how the U.S. loses lo roughly a third. Uh, of its hospital rooms in the several decades leading up to the pandemic. This is why the richest, most powerful country on earth is uh, overwhelmed by a pandemic that we had several months uh, to prepare for it. We simply didn't have the capacity. And, you know, I tell the story of 
uh, this doctor, this emergency room doctor who works for Schwartzman's uh, emergency room staffing company, a company called Team Health. This doctor is, is called uh, Ming Lin. And he had worked as an ER doc in New York uh, during the 9-11 attack on the World Trade Center. He's out in Bellingham, Washington, and it's uh, March of 2020. He's following events around the world, understands that COVID is a real problem, and he's wondering, why are the people at the reception desk in our hospital not wearing masks? And why is it that when they bring in their own masks, the hospital administrators are telling them not to? Why is there no triage uh, set up? Why is there no social distancing? And he's told by his employer, well, you know, we're just the client. Uh, we work for the hospital, and the hospital doesn't want to upset the patients who are coming in the door. He says, well, why are we doing elective surgeries? Washington by now is in a state of emergency. COVID is definitely here. Well, elective surgery, surgeries, that's where we earn all of our revenues. This does not surprise him because to your point about RVUs, you know, relative value units, he's gotten accustomed in the time that Blackstone has owned Team Health to uh, being assessed. He and his colleagues are all assessed on the amount of revenue they produce per patient which gives them an incentive to move quickly through patients, to uh, order up potentially unnecessary tests, to avoid procedures that don't amount to much revenue, even if perhaps they might be useful to the patient. There's a clear conflict between his training and his inclinations and uh, the profit incentives guiding the whole enterprise. Well, eventually he becomes so disheartened and disgusted and worried that he goes on Facebook to, uh, to blow the whistle and he's fired. They, Blackstone's right. company, Team Health, actually fires him. You mentioned five names, Bezos, Schwartzman, Jamie Dimon, Larry Fink. Talk about one of them. I mean, I mean, for example, I think you say that Fink's various private equity operations manage something like $74 trillion. Is that right? No, no, no. So, so Fink is the world's largest asset manager. His company, BlackRock, manages pension funds around the world, university endowments. He's got $10 trillion under management, which makes him okay. the biggest on earth by a very large measure. Uh, and Fink, Fink is a really important character because he's sort of like the Wizard of Oz behind the global financial system. I mean, BlackRock has something like a 5% stake in 95% of the companies that trade on the S&P 500. This is a guy who has a front row seat on the movement of money around the globe. And this is why during the bailouts of the great, uh, great financial crisis in 2008, you know, both the George W. Bush and the Obama administrations invite him inside the tent. He's huddling with Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson and Fed Chairman Bernanke to craft the bailouts. And again, during the pandemic, uh, Fink is brought in into even closer contact with the Treasury. Then uh, this is Trump's Treasury, headed by Steve Mnuchin, who's you know a, a sort of fellow Davos man, uh, and he this gives him incredible power to influence the course of the very events that he's supposed to be uh, reacting to. And it, we should uh, we should note, by the way, that you know Fink is a guy who is the champion 
of this notion of stakeholder capitalism. And stakeholder capitalism is this idea that Davos man has glommed onto that Milton Friedmanism is over. You know, to go back to your point about Reagan, I mean, Milton Friedman, who's like the godfather of neoliberal economics, he comes out of the Chicago school, he's all about deregulation, lower taxes. And his argument is very straightforward. You know, companies should maximize profit. And if they do that, society will get the benefits of of efficient profit-making companies. Well, today's Davos men, led by people like Larry Fink, they say, oh, no, 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 that's not true anymore. Now we're run by stakeholder capitalism. This, this idea that we're thinking about stakeholders like labor, never labor unions. They're very careful not to talk about labor unions because it's very unilateral. Local communities. Benioff, actually, who's another stakeholder capitalism guy, at one point goes on television and says, the planet is a stakeholder, which is, of course, very reassuring to those of us who live on the planet. I mean, it's it's like about essentially we've got this. This is the billionaire class saying you don't need to regulate us. You don't need to tax us. You don't need to think about antitrust enforcement. Just let us do what we do and we'll take care of problems like climate change and racial and gender injustice, et cetera. So think is the leader. He writes these uh, letters to fellow CEOs every year. He talks about how you know they better get with doing right by uh, climate change or the markets will punish them by withholding investment. But meanwhile, you know, I detail the story in the book of how in the midst of the of the worst part of the pandemic for Argentina, Larry Fink personally turns the screws to the Argentine government to cough up a couple of extra cents on the dollar in a settlement on the bonds that Larry Fink's BlackRock credulously bought, uh, buying into the story that the former president, Mauricio Macri, was this transformational agent. And when Argentina defaults, that's a real problem for Larry Fink because, you know, unlike back in the 80s or the 90s when so-called emerging market debt was controlled by a bunch of big banks, and if things went badly, the bankers could get in a room and say, hey, you know, let's we're going to have to write some of this off. Let's take care of this. Now, Larry Fink's going to have to go to like firefighters in Omaha, public school teachers in the north of England and say, uh, sorry to tell you, I lost half your money on Argentine bonds. Uh, and that's not going to go over so well. Moreover, he's looking around the globe and understanding that uh, multiple poor countries and developing countries are going to have a hard time paying back the money that they owe to Wall Street, to the city of London, to centers of finance in Beijing. Uh, and so he personally turns the screws as a way to essentially send the message as I put in the book, you know, nobody stiffs Davos man. And the result of this is that Argentina, in the midst of this pandemic, has to limit healthcare spending, poverty's rising, there's less help for people who are clustered at food banks, and uh, also that investors in BlackRock can get paid back. At the same time, Larry Fink, you know, while he's championing stakeholder capitalism as a solution to climate change, is raising 15 plus billion dollars uh, in investment for Saudi Aramco. Uh, this is only, you know, a couple of years after the murder of the Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi by the Saudi regime. This is as Saudi Aramco, you know, one of the largest uh, fossil fuel companies on earth is expanding their uh, inroads into natural gas. And Larry Fink is a chief financier. Give us an idea. I mean, when you say Davos man, we understand the kind of person you mean. And, and you, you mentioned five individuals. Most of us would 
have some idea about. But it's it's more than that. I mean, it, it it's not only however many individuals go to the Davos meeting every year, maybe a, what a few hundred, but it, yeah. it, it's all it's all of their their servants. I mean, I mean, I mean, they, it's a few hundred, it's a few million people. I mean, the, that make up this class. Well, first of all, I could have written this book with five other people or 50 other people. Um, right. I mean, it's, yeah. it, it, you know, I, I picked these guys in some cases because I knew them. I'd spent time with them. I'd watched them over the years. There were uh, particular cases that I thought were interesting during the pandemic. But yeah, there, there's there's lots of other characters who would have told essentially the same story. I mean, the real story is that these guys employ hundreds of lobbyists. I mean, Amazon alone right. employs a yeah. hundred okay. lobbyists in Washington. And oh, what a coincidence. Much of the federal government seems inclined to deliver policies that are fav- favorable to people like Jeff Bezos and Amazon. I, I wrote this book very much to show that none of this stuff has happened by accident. I mean, one of the right. things I find most distressing is somebody who's now written about uh, economics for going on 30 plus years. There is this tendency, I think, amongst educated, self-identified sophisticates to kind of throw our hands in the air uh, at inequality. Well, you know, you have to talk about in- automation and global flows of money. They're so complex and and uh, all forms of technology. And, and this is just bigger than any nation can solve through government. So we might as well just give up. And that is an idea that comes out of a whole series of smaller ideas that, yes, come out of think tanks that are often financed uh, by Davos man. Actually, it was kind of amusing to see that the Wall Street Journal uh, editorial page uh, commissioned a review from a guy who writes for the American Enterprise Institute, which is this, you know, pro-tax cut, anti-government think yeah. tank in Washington that's you know, financed by by right-wing Davos man who would love to dismantle the government and give all the money to, to people like the Koch brothers. And, you know, I, I was attacked for muddle-headed thinking and uh, championing big government. Uh, so this is the playbook that they follow. And, and, and there is also, I mean, not to leave my tribe out of it, uh, a, a very large problem in media where there is, yes, uh, there is. effectively capture through the practice of access journalism. I mean, I, I mean, a, a sort of smaller version of the cosmic lie. You know, the bigger version of the cosmic lie is if we tax, if we cut taxes on Jeff Bezos and Steve Schwartzman, we'll all get a piece of the action, which has not happened. In my tribe, the lie is, well, if we make sure we're really nice to people like Jeff Bezos and Steve Schwartzman, then we'll position ourselves for really valuable information for the reader later on, which, you know, never happens. Like we might position ourselves for some product announcement that would come out eventually uh, or some, you know, misleading profile. I mean, the access game begets more access. Before you know it, you've like polluted your own thinking about the whole world. Uh, and, and so it is a real problem that we have these glossy magazines going back now decades that lionize uh, the CEO class. I mean, again, I'm not here to demonize the CEO class. Like, no, I know you're not. I, I mean, know let's, not. let's like, like, let's give it up to them, you know, for their innovation and, and, and for, for their often, you know, very useful ideas. I just don't think we should be entrusting them with the solution of all of our problems. And we should understand that they have their own interests at heart. And that's fine so long as we do our part 
and we regulate and make sure that markets don't get dominated by monopolists who don't want to, don't want to pay any taxes. Yes, and we have to understand, and you make this point in the last chapter of your book, that economics is not a law of nature. <laughs> I mean, it's right. it's Voltaire, the comfort of the rich depends upon an abundance of the poor. I mean, the, the, the idea that we can't do anything about it, the idea that, it, that it's beyond our powers as, as human beings to interfere with the mechanics of the free market. Right. I mean, look, there is no free market. No. And we have to get over that. I mean, at the end, in the last couple of chapters, you suggest ways out, basic income, federal job guarantee, and so forth. What do you think the chances are? And, and how do we get out of this cage? Well, first of all, we've been here before. I mean, to your point, I know we have the robber barons. Yeah. You know, we've fought these battles before. I mean, the, the last Gilded Age was pretty sweet for the people who were benefiting, and they had a pretty good control over, yeah. over you know, compliant uh, politicians. I mean, it, it's, it's about realizing that our system has been taken over by a handful of people who are monopolizing the bounty. Uh, and the things we have to do are quite simple. I mean, the execution to, to to your question, you know, very not simple, you know, very difficult. But what we have to do is we got to get back to progressive taxation because we can't uh, tackle any kinds of societal problems that require government unless the government is much better financed. And we can't ask people to make sacrifices. I mean, how do we ask a coal miner in West Virginia to give up their job so we can address climate change if they can see with their own eyes that there's nothing for them if they uh, give up their current uh, livelihood. There's there's no help with job training. There's no help with housing. Nobody's going to provide health care or education to their children. So they're going to fight like hell to hang on to what they've got. And if they can see that, meanwhile, at Davos, everyone's talking about win-win solutions, which is a way of avoiding sacrifice, why should they sacrifice? So that's that's one thing right there. You know, we've got to have progressive taxation so that wealthy people are paying their fair share, so the government can do its job, so there's a basic sense of fairness in our society. We need enforcement of antitrust so we don't have giant monopolists like Amazon uh, essentially uh, dominating their spheres and, and actually undermining innovation and destroying the ability of small businesses who remain the lifeblood of the American economy to prosper. Uh, and we've got to have uh, labor power. I mean, we need to have a form of collective bargaining where workers can actually mobilize to get their piece of the pie. And all of that will create a sense of legitimacy that doesn't exist now in the system. Now, how do we do that, given that Davos man uh, controls uh, much of the government? Well, that is a very big problem. It's a bigger problem the more you think about it. And it's going to require an understanding of the situation that we're in, a systematic removal of money from politics. It's, it, it's, it's going to require a, a hell of a fight. I couldn't agree with you more. And that's why I think this book is such an important book, because it at least shows us what we're up against. I mean, you know, I, I read all kinds of columnists talking about democracy in crisis, but they don't understand what, what what's happening. I mean, and, and, and your book, 
makes it clear, and and we can't uh, we can't know where we're going unless we know where we are. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Very well said. That's right. And, and 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 you do that, and and so thank you. Oh, well, thank Peter you, Goodman, for talking to us today about your new and very fine book, Davos Man, How the Billionaires Devoured the World. Thanks so much, Lewis. I appreciate your questions. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.